you got a Bible, get to John 18. That's where we'll be this morning. All right. Well, uh, we are in John 18 this morning. Uh, We are moving through John's gospel, his account of the life and ministry uh, of Jesus Christ. And we've come to the final night uh, before he's going to go and die on the cross. And the darkness is closing in. Now, throughout his gospel, John has woven uh, a shining thread through the gospel uh, that he uses, catch this, to describe the rejection of God's people for God. And this thread runs through the gospel. Now, this thread is the metaphor of light shining in the darkness, shining to help people in the darkness, but the people choosing darkness over the light. So we can read in in chapter 1, verses 1 and 4, in the beginning was the word, and this will come up on the screen, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You keep reading down to verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So then in chapter 8, Jesus says, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we're like, yes, the light has come. But then we read in chapter 3, the light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And it sits heavy. We're like, whoa, why? But John gave us a glimmer of hope, even in chapter 1, when he said, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So church, we have this thread running through the gospel, and it helps us make sense of what we are going to encounter this morning in chapter 18. What seems incredible all of a sudden comes together. Now, last week, we saw the Lord in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and we saw Jesus in total control as he gave himself over to be arrested in order to drink the cup, the Father's cup of wrath for us. Now this week, the narrative continues. I know it's hard when we just like abruptly stop one week, but so the story is continuing unbroken. And we're going to find Jesus now, having been arrested, questioned before the high priest. And then Peter, just outside, a little bit further away, sliding further and further into total abandonment of his master. As we move through John this morning, indeed, the next few weeks, We are going to see the darkness closing in and yet the light of Christ shining. So with that, let's read uh, our text and then we'll unpack it together. This is John chapter 18. Uh, We're going to start with verse 12. We read this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and, and bound him. First, they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. 
Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. In church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Okay, last week's passage and this week's uh, taken together brings forward a word uh, that's a hard word for us to hear and, uh, and a hard word for us to utter. Uh, that word is betrayal. Okay, betrayal, such a hard word uh, because we know what it's like uh, to have those that we thought were with us turn from us. We have felt the sting of abandonment and the dull ache of the rejection left behind. I mean, it starts early with our kids. We all know, you know, when our kids come to us the first time, they've been out on the playground, and one of their friends that they thought was so close to them did something to, to turn from them, and it just broke our kid's heart. We're like, oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. There's a lot more coming. I mean, we have felt the burn of, of, of secrets that we presumed we're going to be kept secret, leaked out into to gossip and embarrassment. We have known those who, who maybe they, they, they served at a job for years only to be let go by a company that they were so loyal to and they're just cast off. Maybe, maybe, we, maybe we've sat with a, a husband uh, whose wife or, or a wife whose husband has committed the, the most painful of betrayals, they've committed adultery, and we've sat with them and, and we've seen you know, in every fiber of their body, in every crease of their grieved expression, just the torment and the pain that they're going through. Pain and rage mixed together. We know this. We know the letdown of broken promises, the tears of broken hearts, the violation of broken confidences. And 
we've known these not just as those who have been betrayed, but also as those who have betrayed. (laughs) That's harder for us to admit, but we have both sinned and been sinned against. Well, over this section of John is this dour picture of betrayal. You know, last week was Judas. Judas, the betrayal of a confidant turned traitor and enemy. This week, we come to the betrayal, well, first of of a people for their God, a priest of his duty, but then darkest still, the closest of companions, a friend from the inner circle. But church, in the midst of all this darkness of unfaithfulness, we are also going to see the light shining because he is faithful still. So let's, we're, we're going to start. It's going to be hard, but we're going to start with the darkness of the unreligious authorities. Okay? The scene opens with Jesus being bound by the soldiers and the officers of the Jews. Now in John, if you're reading John, that phrase, the Jews, is best understood as the religious authorities of the Jewish people. Okay, because it most often refers to the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin or the high priests and all of their attending officers and servants. So verse 12, Jesus is arrested and bound by these officers. Now, if you were here last week, we know just minutes ago, just minutes ago, Jesus sent these very men sprawling you know, onto their backs by just speaking a word. So we know, and maybe they know too, that Jesus could only be bound if he let them bind him. And so he does. And we're told in verse 13 that then he is led to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And we might scratch our heads and go, why the father-in-law? Why do they they go there first? Well, John, he gives us a few clues to the backstory as well as the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of the priestly system at that time. Okay, in the Old Testament, the high priestly office, that job, it was a lifetime appointment. Okay? If you were the high priest, you served until you died. That's how it went. It wasn't something that changed annually, but John says Caiaphas was high priest that year. What's going on? Well, the Romans had co-opted the priestly system by just deposing high priests that they didn't like and appointing their own as they saw fit. Now, Annas, the father-in-law, he was in fact high priest about 20 years earlier from AD 6 to about 15. And then when he is deposed, he becomes kind of a patriarch of a high priestly family. So eventually, five of his sons will serve in that role at one point in time. And here we know Caiaphas is his son-in-law, and he's sitting in that role. Now, because this office could be given or taken away uh, by the whims of a ruler, the job then was often secured by means of bribery and the trading of, of favors. Caiaphas, who's now the high priest, the son-in-law, he held the spot for 18 years, which tells you what kind of politician he was and the wealth that he must have had in order to hold on to that job. See, Annas and his family had become very rich through their role in, in the priesthood because they controlled the temple money changers. You know, those guys that sit at their booths and when you come with your sacrifice, like, no, that's not good enough here. Trade it in and buy an an approved sacrifice. And they they were dirty in terms of their dealings and they, they got a lot of money. They got rich. So rich, in fact, they became notorious for their greed. So in, it's called the Talmud. It's not a Christian text. It's a Jewish commentary on the law. In the Talmud, Annas and his family, they're, they're just 
exoriated. They are, are condemned as, as having serpents' hisses for their, their greed and the way that they have just, you know, just taken and taken from the people. We might say how corrupt God's people and God's house had become. Before we even get to them crucifying the son, they had already betrayed their God. Now, we might remember when Jesus goes to the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers, and he calls the current temple a den of robbers, he was condemning Annas and Caiaphas's income stream. <laughs> now, taking all of this in, we see Annas, in our passage, he's still pulling the strings behind the curtain. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, you know, he may have the title of high priest, but Annas is still seen by many as the boss. So sitting in the seat of the high priest is Don Corleone or Tony Soprano. You know, it comes as no surprise when we read verse 14 that Caiaphas had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. <laughs> Caiaphas had given that advice back in chapter 11 after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, his advice, it shows that before Jesus comes bound to Annas, the verdict was a foregone conclusion. Whatever evidence they gather is a mere ruse to cover over their plans to bump him off. So in verse 19, Annas begins to question Jesus and the sham trial unfolds. He asks Jesus about his disciples and his teaching and he's conducting a, a pre-trial of sorts while the Sanhedrin is still being awoken and, and gathered next door at Caiaphas' house. Annas thinks he can settle everything and kind of set up the dominoes before Caiaphas takes over and passes it on to Pilate. But this trial, it's full of what we may call illegality. Okay, the first point on that is it's happening in the dark of night. It's happening in secret. This was not how trials were supposed to take place. It's, it's behind closed doors, as it were. Now, we know this because of the torches and the lanterns in last week's passage and the coal fire because it's cold outside in our passage for the guards to keep warm. It's happening at nighttime. So when Jesus speaks, it actually highlights the, the first irony here. Here they are, in secret, asking about his teaching. And he says, I have spoken openly to the world. What I taught in, in public and in private was the same. There was nothing done in secret, unlike this little trial of yours. They are accusing him of, of surreptitious conspiracy while they have surreptitiously conspired against him. He is the light speaking out in the open, and they are the people who have preferred the dark. Well, the second illegal maneuver is that in Jewish law, a defendant never had to give testimony on their own. No, the trial proceeded on the accounts of, of witnesses, but there's no witnesses present here. They're going to be gathered to the Sanhedrin later. So Jesus says, he says, go seek witnesses. Ask them what I said. They know what I said. You know, last week we saw Jesus kind of guide the arresting officers through his detention. And it's almost as if now he's guiding his accusers through the trial, telling them what to do. One of the officers standing by, he doesn't like what he hears. So he strikes Jesus. Again, so ironic. Little did he know that the one who fashioned his hand in his mother's womb is the one that he's striking with it. Now, if we zoom out even further, there's yet another irony that we can see. 
if we think about the high priest, okay, the most important day on the high priest's calendar, okay, it's marked in red, was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Okay, this was, this was his big job. Now, on this day, the high priest's job was to stand before God, stand before this holy God, and acknowledge his own sin and the sins of the people. He goes and performs this, this sacrifice to cleanse them from their sin. But the whole point is he's standing before God saying, yes, we are guilty. But here, we have the high priest putting the Lord on trial. We have the high priest demanding a defense of the Lord. The roles are reversed. Now, the abounding ironies of this passage, they serve to unmask the tragic irony of all of our sin. See, we use our mouths that God made to, well, to curse him, to take his name in vain, to curse others who are made in his image. We use our minds and our intellects and imaginations that he gave us, well, to covet and to fantasize about all kinds of wicked and selfish deeds. I mean, we slap him in the face with the hands that he made when we use these hands to commit our daily sinful deeds. We pursue our greed, our selfishness, our idolatry of comfort, while our hearts at the same time accuse him of withholding good from us. We question his goodness and wisdom because of the pain and the suffering we see in the world. All the while, we commit cruelty. We use our words to maim others and to harbor hatred, which Jesus says is akin to murder. All sin has this tragic and grotesque irony baked into it. And to make matters worse, we sin and then we curse God because we feel guilty. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so it is with each of us, if we're honest. When we slip or we slide or we run headlong into the darkness of sin, and this is true of Peter, as we will now see. From the darkness of unreligious authorities, we turn out to the darkness of an unfaithful servant. All right, just outside this judicial charade, Peter has come, and he's come attempting to follow Jesus. Okay, unlike Judas, where we saw the betrayal of, of an enemy, and unlike the high priests, where we saw the religious establishment betray their God, here we have maybe the saddest of all, the betrayal of a loving friend. And make no mistake, Peter may be weak, he may wilt like grass, but he loves the Lord. And he did not come intending to, to put his weakness on display. So Peter, he, he goes with another disciple to the gate, and the other disciple gets in, but Peter is left outside. Now, for a few reasons I won't get into, we can talk after if you'd like. Uh, I think this other disciple is, in fact, John, but there's some debate about that. But regardless, we just know from the text that there's two things we do know about this other disciple. We know that he's known to the high priest and that he's known as a follower of Jesus. So he goes in, but then he has to go get the servant girl who's serving as the gatekeeper to come back out and to persuade her to let Peter in. When he does, you know, the girl looks at this other disciple. She knows what he's about. And so she looks at Peter and she goes, well, are you also one of this man's disciples? She asks the question in a way that expects him to say no. Okay, Peter is he's unprepared for this questioning. He's still coming down from his failed attempt to start a fight. 
He's still reeling from watching Jesus just allow himself to be arrested. And then the question, it expects a negative answer, expects him to say no. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Uh, 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 I'm not, Peter says. He chooses the easy path. He betrays his friend and he denies his Lord. In the garden, Peter just heard Jesus step out of the darkness with the words, I am. And Peter now steps toward the darkness by stating the opposite. I am not. Now it's a lie. He balks at the truth. He denies Jesus because in that brief moment, it was the easier thing to say. Moments earlier, he was ready to take on the world with his little sword and now he withers before a servant girl. You know, I sometimes wonder, you know, that other disciple, what was the look on his face when Peter says, I'm not? I wonder, you know, did, did Peter see the look on his face? Did Peter realize that it dawned on him what was happening in this moment? Now we're told that the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. These are the very officers that just arrested Jesus. That's why they're up late at night. They were there. These are the officers that Peter had just tussled with in the garden. And then we're told, verse 18, that Peter was also with them now, standing and warming himself. Now, it's such good storytelling. In the garden, the officers and soldiers, they come and we're told that Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And now in our passage, 13 verses later, Peter, we can fill in the blank, who also betrayed him, was standing with them, warming himself with their fire. John makes a point of telling us that they stood with those who were there to arrest and try Jesus. Peter, he's, he's linked up compared with Judas. Judas! They stood with those who opposed the Lord. Peter, having taken a step towards the darkness. Now, well, he sidles up and he gets warm with them. He goes further into the dark. It's possible that John wants us to think of Psalm 1. Do you remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Well, Peter's walking away from the Lord's blessing. He's standing with the wicked. Now, Psalm 1, it depicts, depicts this downward trajectory. You know, first you're walking with them, then you're standing with them. Now you're, you're lounging with the wicked. You're, you're settling into a closeness and intimacy with the wicked and descending into the dark. Get this. Peter didn't set out that evening to deny Jesus. He didn't plan on it. No, he, he slipped. He, he slid into it. Little steps, little decisions, little accommodations or compromises along the way got him there. And that's how it is with a lot of sin. You know, no one who has committed adultery just woke up that morning and said, you know, I'm going to cheat on my spouse today and ruin both our lives. No, no, no one thinks that. There are countless temptations, countless thoughts, countless compromises and little decisions along the way that get you there. And so it is with Peter. Peter's narrative, it picks up again in verse 25. 
John repeats the last line to, to tie it together. He was getting close to the officers, so they ask him the same question as the servant girl. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? <laughs> having lied once, having taken the first deceptive step of denial, oh, how easy it is now to do it again. I am not. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had just cut off, says, did I not see you in the garden with him? I mean, Peter has dug himself a serious hole, and now there's an eyewitness. He's doubled down on this lie, but, but here's this guy who saw Peter's courage. He saw him draw his sword. He saw his bumbling attempt at killing his, his kin. And here he is denying it. Didn't I see you? You were there in the garden, weren't you? Peter, again, denied it. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Peter, Peter, the de facto leader of the disciples, the one who, who made the, the great confession, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of God, and, and Jesus says, on you, I'm, I'm, on this confession, I'm going to build my church. He's going to lead the thing. Peter, he's in the inner circle of three with James and John. They alone got to see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter. They alone, you know, went up on the mountain of transfiguration and saw Jesus just reveal his glory. And Moses and Elijah show up. I mean, it's just this crazy curtain pulled back in Jesus and glory. Peter was there. He saw it. Peter, James, and John, those three were invited by Jesus in the garden into his moment of agony. He was just stay up with me and, and pray. Peter was there. He's close. He is intimate. And now this Peter has denied him three times. And then the rooster crowed. The rooster crowed. And, and Peter knew at that moment what he had done. If you read the other gospels, like it's this boom, it clicks. He awoke to the darkness of his betrayal. One writer said, and I think, this is, I think there's something to this, that the rooster itself is a sign of grace, actually. For had it not crowed, Peter might have gone on denying Jesus a thousand times. But having been warned by the prediction of his failing with the sign of the rooster, Peter stops short at denying him only three times. He realizes his abject failure. You know, in some ways, the rooster, it's, it's the gift of conviction. Now, there's a show that I cannot recommend that you watch. Okay, let me just say that clearly. You cannot watch it. Uh, it's a show called Breaking Bad. Um, it's, it is dark, it is gruesome, and hear me, your pastor did not recommend you watch it. But if you go there and you see it, there, it's, a, it's a dark story. It's a dark story. If you don't know the story, this high school science teacher is in financial trouble, and somehow he gets into cooking up meth and becomes this kingpin, okay, over the, the many seasons. But the first two seasons, there are these, these profound moments of watching someone slide into sin, into the darkness. You watch them break bad. Where this teacher, he gets into this thing, and he's in over his head, and you can see it. He wants out. You can see he's, he's descending into the dark and he's like, ah, I can't keep up this charade. I can't keep this thing going. And I remember there's this one scene where he's there with his wife and she's caught him and he has this moment where it's like, I can come out. In this moment, if I just confess the truth, 
and, and, and say it's going to be hard, but I can be set free from this lie, this tangled web that I have woven. I can, I can come into the light, and you see it click on his face. He has that chance, and then the light goes off, and he chooses the dark, and he doubles down on his lie, and the seasons go on for like six more seasons, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's dark. He needed the rooster. He needed a, a moment of, of true conviction to, to wake him up, to stop him, to... to, to, to to interrupt the pattern. I wonder if any of us this morning can hear the rooster crowing. We all need to hear it. We need to hear the rooster. We need the Holy Spirit's conviction to open our eyes to our sin, to interrupt the patterns, to unravel the weave, the the web of lies that we've woven. We, like Peter, we, like Peter, have been invited in close. But in our weakness, we all find ourselves avoiding the hard choice, taking the seemingly easy path of evasion, sidling up to the comfort of the fire with our fellow sinners and standing far off from Jesus. Sin is so wicked. See, we can both seek it out in our rebellion, but we can also stumble into it into our, in our frailty. See, we're guilty both of the sins of commission and sins of omission. Things we have done and those we have left undone. Do you hear the rooster? Peter, in in his moment, he's brought to the end of himself. His sin is exposed and he comes face to face with his failure. And his self-sufficiency is just crushed. All of his boasts are unraveled with the words of his denials. I mean, we might try to stitch them together and, and, and hear the conversation. Peter, are you able to follow me now where I am going? I am not. Peter, are you able to, to die for me this night? I, I'm not. Peter, are you able to stand and testify to my ministry just like me? I'm not. Friends, we, we need to utter those words. We need to come to the end of ourselves. We need to hear our voices declaring our inability, confessing our sin, and silence our boasting. We need to cultivate what B.B. Warfield called, he called it miserable sinner Christianity. Okay, Miserable sinner Christianity. It's good where we understand that in ourselves, we are nothing but miserable sinners. That is, we are incapable. We are helpless, pitiful, unworthy of anything but God's just wrath. That is what we are on our own. But friends, the good news is we are not on our own. Which brings us finally to our faithful high priest. Our faithful high priest. In the midst of all this darkness of betrayal, There is the light shining out in his faithfulness. Now, John doesn't say it, but I think he's depicting Jesus as our true high priest, our true high priest. Here, Jesus is the true high priest standing before these illegitimate high priests. He's taking their questions. He's submitting to this illegal farce in order to do what they should be doing. Again, the Day of Atonement. Uh, Once a year, it was the high priest's job to to make sacrifices 
on behalf of himself and the people. He, he admits guilt and then he makes atonement. He cleanses them from their sin. But here's the point, in order to bear them into the presence of God. You know, after the sacrifice is made, the blood is spilt, the sins are, you know, put on the scapegoat and the goat is kicked out. The high priest then washes and he puts on his, his ornate robes. He's wearing just linen before that. He puts on his ornate robes and he puts on this chest piece. Okay, I know you read Leviticus and your eyes go cross-eyed and you're like, what's going on? But he puts on this chest piece with, with 12 precious jewels in it, representing the the 12 tribes of Israel. And he wears this, having now cleansed the holy place, cleansed himself, cleansed the people, he can now walk into the holy of holies, into God's presence, where he offers up incense and prayers on behalf of the people. What is he doing? He is taking the people into God's presence. The reason of the sacrifice is not just to cleanse from guilt, but it's atonement. It's to, to restore a relationship of people and their God. They're back into his presence, back into relationship with him. The atonement was setting up the work of the high priest to bring the people into God's presence. He stood in for them in order to bring them back into intimacy with their God. Well, here is Jesus. He's both our faithful high priest and our sacrifice. Here he is. He's being weighed and found spotless without blemish. And yet he will be put forward by these counterfeit priests as our sacrifice in order to cleanse us from our sin, but glory of all glories, to restore us, us, the adulterous betrayers, back into an intimate relationship with our God. The high priest was supposed to bear the people on his chest plate, on his heart, if you will. He did his work as mediator because he loved God and he loved the people. He wanted to see them brought back together. And so our faithful high priest, he does this for you because he loves you. When Warfield talked about miserable sinner Christianity, he was talking about our condition, not our attitude. So he writes this. It's going to come up on the screen. It's kind of long, so bear with me. But it's so good. He says, the attitude of the miserable sinner is not one of despair. It's not even one of depression and not even one of hesitation or doubt. Hope is too weak a word to apply to it. It's an attitude of exultant joy. Only this joy has its ground, not in ourselves, but in our Savior. We are sinners. And we know ourselves to be sinners, lost and helpless in ourselves. But we are saved sinners. And it is our salvation which gives the tone to our life. A tone of joy which swells in exact proportion to the sense we have of our ill desert. For it is he to whom much is forgiven who loves much, and who loving rejoices much. Church, let us rejoice in our faithful high priest. I mean, consider this. It's possible that Jesus at this point, that he's being tried, he's being questioned in the courtyard. Okay, it certainly seems that way from Luke's account of it. So, so he, oh, I'll go over here. Here you have Jesus Jesus being tried before the high priest, standing for the truth, the light shining in the dark, speaking what is right, and just, just across the way in the same courtyard over here is Peter. Here's Peter sinking into darkness with his deception, denial, and betrayal. And as we read the passage, John alternates back and forth between these two accounts. Why? To show us the contrast between these two sets of questioning and testimony. 
Jesus standing in, taking accusation, marching towards an unjust death, get this, for the very one who across the yard is stumbling, denying what is right, and earning the wrath that will fall on the one that he betrays. Now sometimes, sometimes when we contrast Christ's holiness and our sin, Christ's faithfulness and our weakness and frailty, we may be tempted to think, well, Jesus did this begrudgingly. We may be tempted to think that he, he sees that contrast, like, oh, look how great I am, and look at them. And that he wants us to see it and see him, you know, wagging his finger at us, kind of shaking his head in disgust. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Friends, our great high priest went through all of this for you. Our names are graven on his hands. Our names are written on his heart. He went through all of this not to show you how much better he is, but to share what's his with you. That we might see not just our great sin, but our great salvation, which we don't deserve, but which explodes out into exultant joy. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not overcome it. Let me pray. Jesus, give us that joy. For some of us, we we might need to be broken first. We might need to hear the rooster crow first. We might need to do business with our sin to feel the, the conviction, the weight of it, and to confess it to you. But Jesus, lead us on into the light. Lead us on to to our Savior, the one who cleanses us from this sin. The one who pays for it with his very blood and restores us into a relationship with our God. Jesus, take us there. We need you to take us there. And so we praise these things in your name. Amen.